Hey, it's been a while. This is a three-part series on the Wright Brothers. This is just going to be episode one. Uh, it'll count as 94. 95 will come out. That's part two. And then 96. Yeah, it'll be part three. These are from the March Patreon a while back. The show's still been going on Patreon. I've just taken time to do things like nunchucks for shoulder stability, trying to figure out my body. I don't know what to tell you. But anyway, check out the Wright Brothers. Hope your Friday's going well. I'll talk to you later on. All right, I'll see you. Part three. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Oral Presentations Podcast. It's a Friday. What's up, dude? It's Wright Brothers Part 3. Here we go. Joining our story, once again, we got to go back to 1903. All right, we're in Dayton, Ohio. If this is your first time, uh, Wright Brothers Part 1 and 2 or not so long ago, if you just jumped in. Uh, and at this time in 1903, population about 100,000, which is good for back then. And it was also increasing, and it would soon double due to a boom in industrial production and the demand for labor force, which rules. Optimism in general, running high in America at the time. For example... The national debt didn't exist. Just didn't exist. There was a thing called the national wealth, which was a surplus. Like if you run a store and it goes well, back then they, there was no. It was the national wealth. There was a surplus of forty-five million dollars. They were like, <laughs> and they put that in the newspapers. That would be awesome to see, dude. Also, they were going to use part of that forty-five million dollars to re, to soon. Work on the construction of the Panama Canal. That was going to be announced. That's what they used the national wealth for back then. Theodore Roosevelt was about to jump in. Also, we we did the uh, the French Panama Canal. I don't even know when. A year, year and a half ago, if I had to guess. I don't know. I, the time with these episodes is weird for me. Anyway, optimism in America running high. Panama Canal, American attempt about to go down. The French attempt, if you haven't listened to it, it was a while back. Maybe check that out. That was a complete disaster. Uh, a tough job, you know, and they handled it the best they could. I just The only thing I remember from that is that when it was going way bad, the engineers called the guy who built the Eiffel Tower because I think they needed a fall guy because they knew the project was about to tank, and they were like, let's just get this guy. Let's bring him down here and let's blame this enormous failure on the Eiffel Tower guy. Anyway. All right. So our heroes, Wilbur and Orville Wright, already have two successful manned, engineless, flying machine glider trips to Kitty Hawk under their belts. So at the end of part two, only one thing left to do, make a full airplane. Got to put an engine in it. Here we go. Now, problem right away. Airplane engines don't exist. Uh, engines exist, but all of this is new. So the brothers send letters to seven major automobile manufacturers. They're like, hey, uh, this is going to sound nuts. We need an airplane engine. Uh, it's for a manned flying machine. We're looking for the lightest engine possible. If you just, you know, if you got anything laying around. Now, they only receive a response from one. Which was cool, that's not bad, that's not a great percentage, but, you know, at least somebody took you seriously. 
But the motor that was offered by the automobile company, way too heavy to work. But the brothers were like, okay, well, thank you very much for getting back to us. You know, there is a stigma around people working on flying machines. It's nice to be taken seriously by at least, you know, somebody. But the problem still remains. They're going to need an airplane engine. Now, the brothers were, were good mechanically, but building an engine is heavy-duty mechanical skill that the brothers didn't, didn't have, per se. Now, who did have it? Charlie Taylor, which is a character, I believe, introduced in part two. Charlie Taylor is a dude from Dayton, Ohio, uh, wife and kids, ultimate craft brain, can, has worked on everything, just understands. And so the brothers hired him to help run their bicycle shop while they were working on the flying machine project. So they know that they got Charlie Taylor. So they go up to Taylor and they're like, hey, man, we need an engine. What do you think? So Charlie Taylor is like, all right, well, give me a month, dude. You know, now it turns out Charlie Taylor's only experience up until that point with gasoline engines was repairing one. And that was a few years back, but he did repair it, you know, and he did, he did look, he had all the tools you could want. You got a workspace in the back of the shop. We'll give you as much time as you need. We're not going back to Kitty Hawk till like the fall, man. When this conversation takes place, it's like early 1903. See what you can do. And again, Charlie Taylor's like, yeah, dude, give me a month. I'll figure it out. Six weeks later, there is a four-cylinder, eight-horsepower, oh yeah, motor in the back of the bike shop. Charlie Taylor got it done, dude. Now, the gold total flying machine weight is no more than 675 pounds. So, although the brothers didn't give Charlie... They just said, hey, man, if you can build an engine, that would really, if you want to take a whack at it, you know, they didn't give him any, like, rules or anything. It was just, if you can do this, it would be helpful. One thing, though, if you could make it under 200 pounds, that would be great. But, again, we appreciate you working on it to begin with. Now, Charlie finishes the four-banger, and it's only 152 pounds, right? And Charlie did all the cast-iron work of boring out the cylinders and making the cast-iron piston rings all by himself in the back of the bike shop. Now, the engine block itself was out of cast aluminum for weight consideration. Aluminum much lighter than cast iron. Now, they they got the aluminum... Cast, I'm sorry. It's because I'm about to hit a sidebar that I'm pretty excited about. Anyway, the aluminum... Where the hell am I? The, I'm sorry. The aluminum engine block was provided to them by the aluminum company of America, which was based in Pittsburgh, right? So I looked up if that place still exists. They do. This is the company. You may have heard these people. It's called Alcoa. When I found out that that was the company that was the aluminum company of America, and by the way, their corporate headquarters just moved back in 2017 back into Pittsburgh. They're still in Pittsburgh. Dude, Alcoa, real quick sidebar. All right, Alcoa Corporation is an American industrial corporation. It is the world's eighth largest producer of aluminum with corporate headquarters in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Alcoa conducts operations in 10 countries. Right now, they're publicly traded on the stock exchange for $61.63. I don't know. That was, that sounds good to me. Also, there's an Alcoa of Australia Limited. So they're, they're down there too, which is pretty cool. And then I kept, uh, just real quick, sidebar expands in, uh, so I don't really know how aluminum works or who makes it or what, so just real quick. In 1886, Charles Martin Hall, a graduate of Oberlin College, discovered the process of smelting aluminum. 
Now, another guy in France named Paul Hiriot. French has never gotten better the entire time I've been doing this show. Guy named Paul in France also discovered at the same time. They didn't copy off each other. It was parallel thought, right? Okay, so the guy in France realized that by passing an electrical current through a bath, it's like a salt bath. Now, this is much more complicated, but this is, I don't know, the, the explanation I could handle for this format. Anyway, how they make aluminum, this dude in France, Paul, found out that if you put the raw material, aluminum oxide, in a salt bath, and then you put a Frankenstein monster amount of electricity into that salt bath, again, there's a lot of other compounds in here, but you're making a batch of aluminum. What it does, the electricity heats it up, and then liquid aluminum separates and then floats down to the bottom of like the, the salt bath thing you got. I imagine they make this at a giant... I don't know, the only experience I have is that Donkey Kong factory. That's why this kind of makes sense to me. So, like, a giant... What are those things? They just look like enormous... Like, if you cut a... Uh, like, a hot water heater that would be behind a house. If you cut the top off of that and then made it four times as big and then put a big metal grate on top of it. That was the... That was the what it looked like when I made batches at that Donkey Kong factory because the metal grate would be on top of it because you'd have to pour in the ingredients with those Donkey Kong drums. You would rip them from the side because it would say, like, just real quick, if you ever, like, chemical compounder make a batch, this is what the aluminum thing reminded me of. To be able to put the ingredients in, it's like baking a cake. The ingredients are in those Donkey Kong drums, so you have to use, like, a drum dolly or you can, like, rip it from the side. There's, like, a hip technique to pick up one of those drums because they're heavy. But if you can hip technique it on the side, they're like 500 pounds, then you get it on the edge. Then you can control it with almost no force because it balances itself. You roll it over to the top of where the grate is on top of the, uh, like, half a hot water heater. It's killing me. I can't remember what those things are actually called. And then you, I mean, you're not supposed to let the drum drop, just etiquette-wise, if you ever work in a chemical compounding job. You don't, you're not supposed to let the drum slam down. When you're putting in ingredients into a batch, you get yelled at for that. Or if you do it, maybe nobody says anything, but then they see that you're in a grumpy mood. But if everybody's in a good mood and it's a Friday and you're making a batch, and they, but you let a drum slam down, you could hear from the other side of the plant or something. Somebody be like, oh, somebody's mad, having a bad day. When Really, you're not mad. You were just lazy, but you got made fun of for it. The proper way to do it, I mean, there's a couple different ways. If you use a drum dolly, then you can, you just... It's like a, just like a regular dolly. You can put it down on the side, and then you open up the drum, and then watch how much ingredient goes in. Or there's a technique called riding a drum down. So if you can rip this drum up on its side, and then you got it balanced, and then you like, I don't know, it sort of looks like uh, the way you'd balance a dish. <laughs> I, I don't really know how to explain this, but if you were going to do the balance thing on the side all the way over and then you get on top of the drum and again this is like 500 pounds so you got to kind of like pay attention because you can hurt yourself doing this but then you like you straddle it like it's like a horse and then as it falls down it's like a reverse deadlift and it's not all 500 pounds you're it, like most of the weight of the drum is on like the deck as because like that's a point of contact so almost all the 500 pounds is down there but it is like a reverse deadlift to ride the drum down, and then you can get it to tap soft and nobody sees. It's sort of like, I don't know, it's a technique that not everybody does or whatever, but it's kind of a fun thing to like. I don't know, I like that kind of stuff about the job. Man, a lot of sidebars on this one. Anyway, so aluminum smelting, 
they just Frankenstein monster a bunch of raw aluminum ore with electricity through it. And I'm saying it like it's not an incredible thing. It's, it is definitely an incredible invention. And Alcoa has been around in Pittsburgh's since like, uh, what's the founding date on that? 1888, because it's so incredible. I can't believe I'm not giving it more respect, but they have to like build those plants. At least back in the day, they had to build them close to electrical power plants because that's how much electricity you need to shock that salt bath to be able to get the aluminum to ooze out. And then it trickles down to the bottom of the, uh, of like the cauldron. I'm going to call it a cauldron, enormous cauldron. And then I, I found out that if you screw up an aluminum batch, because it's the first thing I looked at, like if I was going to work there, it's like the, like, how do you totally screw this job up? So you don't, so you can avoid that. The way you do that, as I understand it, one of the ways is that you don't get the liquid aluminum out of the bottom of the batch after it separates in time. Because if it pulls down there, then the temperature is going to cool. And then you get solid aluminum at the bottom of that huge cauldron. And I don't, I don't know, I've never worked in like an aluminum plant or anything, but I imagine you get in so much trouble if you let that happen. Because <laughs> I have like burned a batch and had a batch not pass like quality control and stuff. And then, man, that's not, those are bad. You don't, those don't happen. You, you maybe get like one of those accidents before you just get fired, dude. So anyway, that's a sidebar. Alcoa provided the engine block, um, and that's aluminum smelting, the the dumbest version of it. All right, anyway, so Charlie Taylor's engine, aluminum engine block from Alcoa back in the day. Took him six weeks to build it. They started up in the back of the uh, bike shop. It is loud and dirty, but it's good to go. Now the next day, they started up again, and the engine block cracks. All right. That's all right, though, because Alcoa sends a new one. I don't know. They let the gasoline cool or something. It just cracked. Alcoa sends a new one, which totally works, and they get an extra 12 horsepower out of nowhere. All right? Happy accident. That's fine. All right, so glider works. Engine works. Need propellers. I didn't even consider this. Yeah, they they also have to invent these because you can't buy them because they don't exist yet. So for the Wright brothers, it's time to invent airplane propellers that their lives may depend on. All right, well, there's no existing data on airplane propellers, so the brothers are like, how are we going to figure this out? They investigate marine propellers first. They go down to that new Dayton library, and they find every book they can on boats, how do boats move, boat motors, screw propellers, and they ultimately can't figure it out. There's not a clear answer in any of the books in the Dayton library at the time of how does a screw propeller work in water because they they need the raw data they can't find it they like every time they get to a book there's just like a little like it's almost like a fudge section of like and then the boat goes forward and they're like okay we need like mechanical tables man we're doing hacksaw blade wind tunnels in the back of our shop i need data this is not good so no luck at the dayton library the brothers become obsessed with inventing airplane propellers all right here's how they broke it down They've already done airplane wing, right? On the glider, that works. Now the airplane wing they got, that works, goes in a straight course and it rides on the wind. The way they saw it, a propeller is just another airplane wing. But instead of going in a straight course, it goes in a spiral course. I don't have many great examples for this, but 
in the in a Legend of Zelda game, and if you were an underwater character, and then you did like an underwater dash, it would go in a spiral to go fast. I think you could like kill enemies that way. I could have just said dolphin in the ocean doing spins, and avoided admitting video game knowledge. But whatever, it's fine. Anyway, so propeller, airplane wing, but it's going in a spin. All right. I gotta brush up on these analogies, man. I'm falling off. All right, so thrust on the propeller depends on the speed at which the angle of the blade strikes the air, which depends on the speed at which the propeller is turning. Okay, so if propeller turns fast, that's like it's karate chopping the air harder, which will then create more thrust. I'm going to leave it. I think that works. Uh, if it doesn't work, propeller go around, karate chop the air. The harder you karate chop the air, the more it goes forward. So the Wright brothers figured out that the speed of the propeller blade karate chopping the air is what's important here. Also, they were fighting like cats and dogs when this was going on. They, they, they would fight to try to figure stuff out. The brothers were arguing so much trying to figure this out that Sister Catherine threatens to leave the house if they don't stop yelling at each other. There's a real problem for them. So, the brothers finally settle. The flying machine is going to need two propellers in the rear. They end up being eight and a half feet long each. Now, one's going to spin clockwise, and the other's going to spin counterclockwise to balance the forces placed on the glider, which will then hopefully preserve the brothers' already established gliding equilibrium. All right, March 23rd, 1903. Brothers apply for patent on their flying machine, plus wing warping system and propeller blades. At this point in time, they also receive a letter from Paris by that dude from Chicago, Octave Chanute. This guy already, he gave Wilbur like a live speaking lecture gig date. He's sort of like a friend, but he also works with the, like, not rival squad, but there's another squad we'll get into in a second from the Smithsonian Institute in D.C., headed up by a guy named Langley, and Octave Chanute is kind of on that guy's team. But he's also a friend of the Wright brothers, and the Wright brothers looked up to him and used his books on animal flight and aeronautics to be able to start their own projects. So, like, they like this guy a lot, but he's also sort of on the other side. He's certainly not, like, a free radical floating thing, but he did give Wilbur a speaking gig. So he's a friend, you know, and he's like a 70-year-old French dude. Anyway, so they receive a letter from Paris by Octave Chanute. He's like, hey, what's up? My wife died three months ago, so I'm in Europe now, and uh, I'm over here giving speeches about, uh, you know, flight, and I'm talking you guys up. I'm just saying. The Wright Brothers like, oh, that's nice. And then from another source, the Wright Brothers hear that Octave Chanute is out there in Paris giving speeches about aeronautics and talking the Wright Brothers up. But he is talking them up as if he is their teacher and that they are his students carrying out his work. Now, in these lectures, I'm sorry, lectures in Paris that Octave Chanute is giving, aside from saying that they're like his apprentices, he's also giving out detailed information about the Wright Brothers glider in all of his talks. All of this without asking. And that information would be used by French inventors to elevate French aeronautics in the coming years. Now, the brothers hear about this, and they don't say anything, but they also don't forget it. So at some point in time, 
Octave Chanu writes back to the brothers again from, from Paris, and he's like, hey... Now, he doesn't know that the brothers know what he's doing over there. So Chanu's like, hey, what's up? I'm writing an article for this French magazine. I would love to put a picture of you guys in there. Can you guys send me a picture for this French publication? The brothers let the text sit for like three weeks, and then they respond, thank you, but we don't take pictures. Sorry. <laughs> now, Chanu offers Wilbur another lecture in Chicago. He might have felt that something got weird there. Wilbur takes the second lecture in Chicago. He's like, fine, I'm not mad at the guy. Whatever, we're doing our own thing. So Wilbur goes to Chicago, does another live gig. Goes much better. This time, he really hits on that the technology is there. The wing technology specifically is there. But there are no skilled pilots. And there's also no way to manufacture skilled pilots yet. Because you need hours of flying to be a skilled pilot. He also talks about how like a bird's wings are incredible, but that a bird has been using them his whole life. This is why we can't find skilled pilots. This is what we're up against. We don't need better wings. We need better operators. After the talk, people try to ask Wilbur about like other people's flying machines, trying to get him to talk shit a little bit, trying to be like, hey, did you hear about Thomas Edison's flying machine? And then they also ask him about the flying machine of Samuel Langley, which is the Smithsonian Squad, kind of with Octave Chanute. Now, Wilbur deflects, and he's just like, yeah, I hope they're being safe, you know? I don't, I wish them luck out there, and just gets away from the people asking questions. Because Wilbur would later say that it's not right for one flying machine man to publicly criticize another flying machine man's work, you know? Because everybody thinks their method's best, and it's best to just leave it. You know, if anybody, you just leave it, and you wish them the best, because it's not going to help anything. You just, you, you just leave it. Now, in the second lecture that Wilbur did for Octave Chanute, Wilbur deliberately left out all talk of the motor that, the, that Charlie Taylor built, the aluminum. He left out all technical and also left out the propeller blades. It's speculated that he did this because the brothers found out Octave Chanute was going over to Europe with loose lips and giving away their trade secrets a little bit without asking them. You know, and instead of having a big fight thing with him he was just like i'm not even going to talk about the new stuff we got because i can't trust him with it all right july 14th 1903 samuel langley and the smithsonian test their motorized flying machine okay let's see it we'll see maybe they crack it i don't know on the potomac river potomac river i've been saying that wrong the whole time i read it in my head as like potomac i don't live in dc or watch the news much so bear with me so smithsonian's idea is that they're going to test it over the Potomac, Potomac, Potomac River. Now I'm thinking about it and I'm going to screw it up. Potomac River. Anyway, they're going to test it over the river because if it goes into the river, that probably won't kill their pilot and it hopefully won't kill their machine. Now, this Smithsonian squad is sort of the American government's formal attempt to establish manned flight in that They've given them $50,000. It's the Smithsonian Institute. And there's a couple hitters on this squad, too. Alexander Graham Bell is on this squad. He gave $20,000 to the project. Sidebar here, Alexander Graham Bell, U.S. Patent for the Telephone on March 7th, 1876. Also, quick fact here about that. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell considered his invention of the telephone as an intrusion on his real work as a scientist and refused to have a telephone in his study area. All right, so 
Smithsonian's flying machine is launched. Let's see what's going. This time they didn't do it with a pilot, but it is. They do have a motor on it. Now they launch it with a catapult off a houseboat. It goes up and nosedives into the river. Didn't work. The press run the headline, Flying Machine Becomes Submarine. And uh, yeah, that one didn't go well. Wilbur and Orville see all the negative press. And then Wilbur writes a letter to Chanute. And he's like, hey, hard to hear about your friends getting crushed in the news. And then he puts a joke in at the end of like, at least I know there's like, there's a lot of mosquitoes on that riverbank. So, you know, those, those reporters got bit up by mosquitoes that day. But yeah, hard to hear about your friends getting, uh, that sucks, man. This is a tough job out here. All right. The brothers are going back to Kitty Hawk. Round three, September. Mosquitoes are terrible again. Winds bad. Dunes look great though. In the year they've been away, the wind has changed where the dunes are at, so they have a better launching area for their own manned flying machine. Now, Postmaster Dan Tate and the Kitty Hawk locals, who are now fans of the brothers, are excited to see him again. Now, when the brothers first get there, a storm hits so hard that it tears some of the roof off the hangar, which is bad because the glider can get damaged from the wind, so they got to fix it right away. Now, Wilbur wrote in a letter back to uh, back to. Catherine and uh, Bishop Wright back in Dayton that Orville went up to fix the roof in the storm, right? Okay, so Orville goes up to fix this roof. He's going up this ladder, right? He's got a coat on. It's a horrible wind rainstorm. Coat's blowing over his head, right? He's got nails in his pocket. He's up there. Coat's blowing over his head. He's holding a hammer. He's up on the roof. He can't see. He's dropping the nails, right? He has to come back down. He's coming back down. All right, all right, second attempt. Orville takes his coat off, right? Puts the nails in his mouth and then goes back up the ladder to fix the roof, right? Wind and rain so bad. Orville keeps hitting his own hands with the hammer during this repair. Oh my God, it made me smile thinking about how how mad Orville must have been up on that <laughs> up on that roof in that storm hitting his own hand with the hammer and how hard it must have been for Wilbur not to make fun of him right when he got down from that second time in the repair because it's one of those things where you know a guy's so mad at himself and just the situation that like if you say anything <laughs> you just can't say anything anyway so Orville gets the roof repaired Wilbur doesn't make him more mad so they don't have a huge fight and end up killing each other but uh yeah, tough repair for Orville there. All right, October 7th, 1903. Brothers receive another notice that the Langley Smithsonian flying machine on the Potomac River, there we go, is going to go again. Now, a couple more details on what the Smithsonian thought was going to work here. It was called, it was a full-size aerodrome test. It was piloted this time by a dude named Charles Manley. Now, the flying machine itself was huge. 48-foot wingspan. Again, they launched it via catapult off a houseboat. Second time up, Charles Manley. Here we go. Launched, went up, went down again. Okay, back in the river. Back in the river. Charles Manley unharmed. Okay. All right. So the brothers find out about this, and then they go out, and they take their old glider out, and as extra preparation, they do a bunch of just regular no-engine glides that they did from last year. They break all previous records from the year before. It's good energy there. The brothers then fire up the engine just to tell, you know, good, you know, this is going well. Let's see how this is going. They fire up the engine. They break the propeller shafts. Uh, 
of the of the engine of the glider they were going to try this year. Okay, it's fine, but it does push their timeline back. We're already in October. Dan Tate, Kitty Hawk locals all said, if you're going to come here, best weather is probably going to be like September to October. You don't want to be here in November. It gets pretty bad. But you got broken propeller shafts. It's not going to work. We, we came here to do the one with the engine. We got to figure it out. Brothers send broken propeller shafts back to Dayton, Ohio. Tell Charlie Taylor, please, dude, whatever you could do and send these back soon. We are working against the weather here. November 23rd, new propeller shafts arrive for the brothers. They also crack. Ah, damn. All right. November 30th, pushing the timeline back further and further. We're, weather's getting much worse. Orville goes back to Dayton himself to try and help figure this out with Charlie Taylor. December 8th, Smithsonian and Samuel Langley, third time's a charm here, trying their flying machine out one more time. Charles Manley's like, all right, I got it. Here we go. Now, the project was out of money, and they already had two public failures this year. So they were kind of up against it. Again, you got a 48-foot wingspan flying device. It's going to be launched again by a catapult off a houseboat. And on December 8th, there were sheets of ice on the river. So they asked Charles Manley, like, hey, man, you know, we, we're out of money. We kind of have to do this. So Charles Manley's finally like, all right, yeah. And he's not a scientist or anything. He's just a guy who said, I'll fly the thing. He's on the team, but he's not... He's not going to get yelled at if this goes bad. So they're asking Charles to get up there... And it's going to be dangerous. He's already gone up and down King the Ka twice. He's like, all right, fine, I'll do it. 4.45 p.m., engines fired up. Charles Manley gives the sign to launch. <laughs> Flying machine catapulted off the houseboat 60 feet up into the air. The wings crumble. The flying device does a backflip and then crashes into the icy river. All right, Charles Manley underwater was trapped by the wires which were supposed to hold the wings together but breaks free of the wires gets up to the surface of the river is trapped under ice has to break through ice and then slumps himself onto the side of the riverbank now charles manley is uninjured after this test but the press report that when he was on the riverbank and they were putting blankets on him he went into a tyrant of profanity like they had never heard about. So, which is fair, dude. Look, he he was playing ball. He said he'll do it. He almost died like four different times on there. He let him go. He's gonna say, how bad could it have been? It was like 1903. He hit a couple gosh darns. And that's it. Now, after this test, the Smithsonian and the government—I mean, the U.S. government—severs ties with the, the Smithsonian project. They just say, "Good game, dude." Look, it's been ten years. It's been a lot of money. Nobody's saying he didn't try hard. We're done with you guys. This is devastating to the point of Langley, the, the leader of this flying project, uh, that he dies three years later. He never gets over the failure, how badly that went. Wilbur then writes in a letter that like, hey, you know what? Those Smithsonian guys, they're, they're not going to get credit for this, but honestly, them just going after it was really helpful for us. It made it seem realistic to try that the U.S. government was behind this because there's so many stereotypes about a man flying machine being a total waste of your time. You know, the treatment that they're getting in the press is shameful. All right, Monday, December 14th, back to Kitty Hawk. Orville, back with steel propeller shafts. 
It's time for the first motorized flying machine test. Now the brothers flipped a coin to see who was going to win or who was going to fly it. Wilbur wins. Wilbur's going first. Engine started. Wilbur goes down the launching track. Pilot error pulls up too quick. Overcompensates. Noses down too quick. Lands 100 feet from the track. But their flying device is not badly broken, and they know what happened. That doesn't count as a win, but that's a good failure. Motor, launching process, all good. It was just pilot error, which is fine. Repairs take two days. December 17th. Weather's bad. You're not supposed to be a Kitty Hawk doing this at this point in time. It's December. It's freezing with a crosswind, but they're going again. Now, some locals show up, but the weather's bad and it's cold. And there's not really a good energy to them. They don't, they don't cheer enthusiastically. Like the, the brother, Orville and Wilbur, like shake hands. And Orville's like, here we go. I'm getting in this hip harness, dude. And then kind of mugs to the crowd. And the crowd gives like half-heartedly like, you got it, man. Be safe. You got, hey, be safe. You got it. You got it, though. You got it, man. God, I like these guys. I hope he doesn't die. Be safe. Those are the kind of cheers he got, right? Now, before Orville goes, the brothers set up a state-of-the-art shutter camera that they had just bought for like $55, which was an incredible sum of money back then. It was a thumb-depressed camera. So Wilbur goes up to one of the locals, and after they set up the camera right after the launching pad, right after it's going to go up, Wilbur goes up, tells a local, hey, this is a camera, this is a shutter camera. You got to hold this thing. It's it, it looks like a microphone with a thumb to press on the top. When my brother flies an airplane past this, can you just push this thumb to press thing? Thanks. And the local had never taken a picture before and was like, I got it. Okay. All right, Orville, here we go. Engine starts. Orville mounts up down the launching track. He's up. He is up, dude. It does dip down, but then it dips back up. And he's soaring. Landed 120 feet from the starting point. Total flight time, 12 seconds. Counts. Big win. Manned aerial flight. They did it. 12 seconds, 120 feet. You got an engine on there. My brother was on there. We got a picture of it. Totally counts. They did it. They figured it out, man. Now, before they left, they did three more manned tests with the engine. The longest flight time was 59 seconds, a quarter mile. And after that one, there was talk of flying it down the beach to buzz the weather station. This just sounds like everybody was in a good mood at this point where they're like, all right, what are we doing now? What are we doing now? Well, how far away is the weather station? Let's just fly right by him in this airplane. Oh my God, let's get it going. <laughs> it's just like a fun time idea that got thrown out there. Now, the same day that idea got thrown out, a storm catches the Wright brothers' plane when it was on the launching pad. Now, Kitty Hawk local John T. Daniels, about a 200-pound dude, was holding one of the wings of the plane when this happened. The wing caught it, or the wind caught it, picks up the airplane and John T. Daniels into the air. The airplane weighed like 600 pounds. John T. Daniels, 200 pounds. It's 800 pounds up in the air. Just go, like, up. Now, Daniels figures out a way to bail out of the craft while he was in midair. He wasn't in the hip harness. He was just holding one of the wings. But when the, when the when the plane got picked up by the wind, he got thrown into the engine area where there's all the chains and a bunch of wires. He had to get out of there. 
he ends up bailing midair and just falling on the beach. And he gets up and he's like, everybody's looking at him terrified. Like he doesn't even know if he's hurt. <laughs> he doesn't know what just happened. Again, nobody, this is 1903. So like the only kind of fall you would ever have like that is like I fell off a house or a tree or I don't, like this would never happen to a human being before. So John T. Daniels got taken up in the air, had to jump out, land in the sand, no broken bones, no nothing. But the Wright Brothers plane is irreparably damaged. And when John T. Daniels gets up, he's doing the thing where like, am I all right? Oh, oh, no broken bones. I, dude, everybody had to be looking at him. I've only been hurt seriously a couple times in my life, but I remember when I cut, I almost cut off, like, I didn't know. I mean, look, I cut my own foot pretty bad with an ice skate when I was 14. It was bad. There's a lot of blood, right? But I didn't know how bad it was. And I think that I was talking to a buddy about this too. Like, whenever, if you get hurt bad, what's actually scary is how other people look at you and ask if you're okay. Because you're all, you're in it, so you don't know what it looks like to other people. Dude, the other Kitty Hawk locals must have been staring at John T. Daniels like, Dude, that's never happened before. Are you okay? John T. Daniels like, Yeah, I'm, I'm good. John T. Daniels gets credit for being the first guy ever involved in an airplane crash. Because that was the first airplane ever. First guy in an airplane crash. Like two days after it happened. Totally fine. Woo. But yeah, the brother's uh, airplane was uh, destroyed to the point where it was inoperable after the crash. But look, they had already gotten it done. That count. They got the 12 second, 120 feet with Orville. We got a picture of that. We got 59 seconds and a quarter mile. We were talking about going and messing with the weather guys. And then John T. Daniels almost got killed in an airplane crash. You know, I feel like this is a good third trip. We're good. That's it. And that is the story of the Wright brothers and uh, manned aerial flight. Thank you guys for listening to the show. I hope your Friday's going great. I'll uh, I'll 